Hey there, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. On today's show, we're catching up on P.T. Anderson's latest film, Phantom Thread, to find out if Daniel Day-Lewis's Reynolds Woodcock can finally make me fall in love with a PTA picture. Plus, we've got a special guest to help us explore the House of Woodcock, a chic little beer pairing, and some really rad recommendations you should totally check out. But first... Midnight Warriors, we missed the opportunity to discuss Phantom Thread when it rolled out to theaters back in the winter uh, because it just didn't work out with with scheduling conflicts. But it is a new PTA movie, and so we decided we had to discuss it. It's now out on home video, uh, so we're we're reviewing it here today. And no Paul Thomas Anderson review would be complete here in Warships Midnight without our Paul Thomas Anderson aficionado, Peterson Hill. So please welcome him back to the show, Peterson. Welcome back. Excited to be back. Talking about the one and only. Yeah, welcome back. I'm sure you've heard the P.T. Anderson news by now. Um, A a couple days ago, it leaked that P.T. Anderson is secretly directing, get this, an Adam Sandler stand-up special for Netflix. Now he is secretly not directing that Netflix special. Uh, What? (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) for about three days, people were thinking, oh, yeah, he's directing because he was at the filming and I guess he was kind of around the filming, um, around the cameras, and everyone was like, oh, PTA, is he directing this Adam Sandler thing? Is he directing this special? And turns out he's not. He came out and said, nope, I was just there, basically, I guess, enjoying the show. I thought I was being good bringing some P.T. Anderson fresh news to the mix. I, I should have known better than to try to one-up you on P.T. Anderson. It's too quickly. That's, he doesn't move at that kind of pace. <laughs> That's true. Although, I I mean, when the news for, first broke, I was thinking this makes sense because of his love for someone like Jonathan Demme, who is known for, you know, besides his, uh, you know, his narrative films for his live concert sort of films. Uh, yeah. So it, it made sense to me in a way thinking about it that like, oh, this is something BTA would try to, to do. And they're friends too. I mean, they're good. I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure. sure. I don't know how good of friends they are, but I mean, it seems like they've got a pretty good working relationship and keep in touch. Obviously, you know, Sandler being from SNL, my Rudolph as well. And then obviously the punch drunk love working relationship there. I, I would still, I mean, honestly, I would love to see them collaborate again. I would much rather it be another dramatic something or other. Um, maybe that's, I mean, I, now that, now that he can't have Daniel day Lewis anymore, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, maybe he should go back to the Adam Sandler. Well, what do you guys think about that? Yeah. But like you said, I, I don't see the benefit of him directing a special. Have you ever noticed good direction or bad direction in a stand-up special? Generally, no. I mean, but to go back to the Jonathan Demme comparison, like Stop Making Sense is certainly a concert film that breaks the mold of a concert film. So if you could try to do it, but it would be, I think it would be, probably even harder for stand-up because like you're there for one sole purpose. Yeah. I think stand-up's got to be a little bit more difficult, but I mean, you know, there's been some great concert docs. So I think, you know, it's always interesting to see what is done in between sets and what's done in between songs. And, you know, who knows? I mean, Sandler is, I mean, I'll, I'll say, I mean, I think Sandler is genuinely a great actor when he can get out of his own way. 
If he yeah, was absolutely not making, you know, uh, whatever that goddamn Western was, um, <laughs> ridiculous the, six. Not ridiculous six, that yeah. bad ridiculous six. No, well, <laughs> High, pretty offensive, probably. If if you think casting Adam Sandler to play an Indian who's very good at things is offensive. High praise from Jacob Graves. Not that bad. Ridiculous. It wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. To me, Adam Sandler is the Nicolas Cage of comedy. The the, the best and the worst. Yeah. Like if you put him, if you get him motivated and put him with someone who will keep him motivated, he can do extremely well, but he's also just willing to get a paycheck. Speaking of Nicolas Cage, I did think one scene uh, in this movie, Reynolds Woodcock had some Nicolas Cage bird hair going on, and <laughs> and I wanted to grab a screenshot, and I didn't. But I'm going to go back and do that, because there was some serious hawk hair happening. Okay, well, while you go back and look for that, how about we transition into our discussion of Phantom Thread? What do you say? Sounds great. Um, let me see. <clears throat> I wanted to ask your help in a gift I wanted to make for Reynolds. I want to make him a surprise. If everyone left the house when he takes his walk on Thursday, I will cook for him dinner. And when he comes back, no one will be there but me. I'll be waiting for him. I will surprise him and we can have dinner together just the two of us do you like this idea would you help me it isn't his birthday i know i would advise against this Arnold. why because he doesn't like surprises he does well he won't like this one i'm trying to surprise him and love him the way that i want to Well, if you're looking for something kind to do, perhaps you could think of something else. No, I really must advise against this, Alma. I don't think there could be a more inappropriate time to try something new. This is what I want to do, and I think it will be very nice. I respect your advice, Cyril. But I have to know him in my own way, and this is what I want to do for him. So, Jake, I am really excited that we finally have the opportunity to talk about Phantom Thread. Um, it didn't make my top 10 of the year when we we did that episode because it hadn't come here yet and I hadn't seen it. Um, had it been uh, in theaters before we did that episode, it probably would have cracked my top 10 and probably would have been pretty high, decently high, top five for sure. I'm curious because you're a little infamous on the show for being a bit of a PTA naysayer. Uh, back when we did our No Country for Old Men versus There Will Be Blood episode, it was really no contest for you. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, did this do anything for your perception of Paul Thomas Anderson? Um, did you find anything to love or are you still looking for the perfect film from him to draw you in? Okay, so I found stuff to love here. This is not a movie that I, I just hated or anything like that. Uh, but no, just initial, I'll just throw it out there. This didn't, this wasn't better than There Will Be Blood. It, it was not, that That to me is still his his high watermark for sure. 
of the of the things I've seen. This one was a really interesting film. I really thought he is doing exactly what he intended to do. Just it yeah. didn't necessarily work a hundred percent for me. But uh, I really, really enjoyed watching the character uh, Reynolds Woodcock and Alma, but both of them and their interactions were, was fantastic. Um, I, I still don't really know what I was supposed to take away from the movie. Okay, well, maybe we can get into that a little bit. Um, Peterson, I guess I'm just taking for granted that being the the huge PTA fan that you are, you you love this. I don't think we've really discussed this. How do you feel about Phantom Thread? I mean, if I was going to do my top 10, I originally had it in my number two spot. And after rewatching it a couple days ago, probably would put it in my number one. Um, maybe say number two, it's hard to say. But, you know, I think this is PTA. You know, I hate to be the person who comes on and says, oh, number one year, the number one film of the year again by Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, I don't like being that guy, but I think he is just operating on a level that is unheard of for people today. I think he is a master behind the camera. He's a master of dialogue. He's a master of setting tone. Um, I think his collaborations now with John Greenwood are just getting more and more interesting. Yeah. Um, I think this, you know, the score, if you listen to his other scores, I think it is really distinct and really different and perfect for the time period with a few little flourishes that make it interesting. Um, and then I think, you know, when you look at the performances, it is, I think, across the board, just amazing. Um, and the way PTA focuses on truly faces in this film and not just um, perfect faces. Mm-hmm. And I think he focuses a lot on Leslie Manville's face and he draws in so tight and it shows the imperfections of people, but the perfection of fashion. And it juxtaposes that beautifully with each other in a way that I don't think any other person would even think to begin dissecting. You mentioned the, uh, the score. I think it, it matched the film really well. I wasn't crazy about it. And I admit that it's probably a fantastic score. You were, you were really off on, you didn't care for Johnny Greenwood's score and there will be blood either. Right. You, you kind of borderline disliked it. If I remember yeah, the is they're both, and they're similar in, in that they are playing over a lot of the movie, a lot of the action, a lot of the dialogue, and they are very, very out front, very present. Yeah. If the score doesn't work for you in this movie, I think it'd be really difficult to get into it because it is, I mean, it's almost wall to wall score. There's not a lot without uh, score in this film. And, and the scenes that don't have it are, are especially powerful for their absence of the score. Um, just because it's very much different from the kind of uh, the flowing nature of the other scenes. I think the score serves really well to tie those scenes together to, to, to show kind of this world that they're living in is defined by the score. I can't say that it doesn't work because clearly it works. It's just not necessarily my cup of tea. I think the score, I think you're right. The score is integral to this film working. I think the thing that, uh, that I find interesting about the way it works here even more than something like there will be blood is uh it it really feels like johnny greenwood's score is sort of the connective tissue that uh that pieces all of these you know this this montage and these sort of vignette moments at times together Mm -hmm. and the the thing that i think is interesting about that is uh 
Johnny Greenwood doesn't score to picture. I was listening to an interview with Lynn Ramsey. I think it was on the, the Filmstruck pod, podcast last week. And uh, she was talking about working with him for uh, You Were Never Really Here. How he basically, he asks for an emotion and then he delivers that. And then you cut to what he delivers. You, you cut around it. And and so it's interesting in a, in a way, Johnny Greenwood is almost presenting directors with not, you know, it's not exactly a classical piece of music, but they're basically the approach in that collaboration is sort of that, you know, where you would pick out a Bach piece of music or, or whatever Wagner, whatever it is and cut to it because it has emotion. He's sort of presenting you the same thing, but customized with the, you know, you can say, I need this, 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 and this. And I think it is so integral. I mean, I think that opening score that almost has like that Mr. Rogers piano that, that yeah. kind of flows up and down is so beautiful in immediately putting you in the mindset of, of this, you know, 1950s uh, era, you know, house of fashion in London. Like it's, it is the perfect mood setter setter for what we're diving into. Um, but then also juxtaposed to some of the darker stuff or the, the more difficult stuff to digest with who Reynolds Woodcock is as, as a person. Um, and so I find that, I find that fascinating as well. I'm so glad you mentioned that he scores, um, without he doesn't score a picture because I didn't know that, but that is exactly what it feels like, and it may be what what turns me off on it a little bit. But I think, and I do think it works here because the music implies this flowing of time. It it implies all these things are happening, and I feel like I'm seeing vignettes out of it because mm-hmm. it is not picture first, music second. It is this piece of music, and it almost represents you know their lives or the the environment or whatever, and you only see those little bits out of it and. Uh, it it definitely works. It definitely feels like you are seeing a lot of time and you're feeling the emotion you're supposed to feel um, across all those scenes or vignettes. Well, well, and there's a weird elasticity to the way the structure of the story plays out because it starts out and we kind of think that it's this narrative from Alma's point of view, but ultimately it's not so much that she's the narrator. It's more that she comes in to explain some things along the way and that interweaves. And, you know, obviously on first watch, you're trying to figure out exactly what the time frame is, but uh, really it's, it's that uh, the music works to kind of bind that elasticity together um, in a, in a weird, and this goes, I think to Peterson's point of like, there's no filmmakers making films quite like, uh, uh, P.T. Anderson in just the way that this the whole thing is structured. It's not, it's not linear, but it's also not totally unconventional. It's this weird thing that it makes sense as a whole, but it's also not what you would expect to approach a story like this. That's why I don't understand why he isn't considered one of the best edited uh, directors out there because he structures and moves through his films with a space and a sound design unlike anyone right now you know I, you know this beginning and certain parts of this you know talk about the butter scraping the bread you know that reminds me of some of the sound design from there will be blood which is just un that's i mean that to me that's still the high watermark of this century for films and he is editing in a way from a sound perspective that draws you in 
subtly into the world and kind of immerses you in a way and doesn't pull back. And he kind of really throws you in headlong in a way that I just, I can't understand when people aren't emotionally connected to his movies because like a good piece of music, he brings it all together. He makes the emotion stand front and center to me. Um, and I think that's very evident with Phantom Thread, especially on a second rewatch this time. You know, I, you know, we'll get into more tricky kind of difficult subject matter, but from dealing with the outset, I think it is just a movie that I want to luxuriate in and spend time with, you know, as dark as some of the subject matter gets, it's a fun world to exist in, you know, you know, I think, um, you know, Chris, we had a kind of off air text message exchange talking about, you know, breakfast got snubbed for, yeah. uh, yeah. breakfast got snubbed for best supporting, you know, there's martini porn in this thing. There's, you know, um, you know, their lives are luxurious and then it gets to the thorny subject material. And I think it's, you know, PTA is just as equipped to deal with these people as monsters as he is, is dealing with people is people you kind of want to idolize a little bit. You know, their lives, you know, I would love to not have any responsibility like Reynolds Woodcock. You know, it's fantastic. But at the same time, you know, that's not the world we live in. And he makes it both aspirational, but also kind of horrifying at the same time. It's not hero worship of this character of Reynolds Woodcock. And it's not like he's he's neither villain nor hero, I guess. he's He's a very... Uh, complex, conflicted sort of sort of character, you know. And, and I'm glad you bring up the sound design um, because I I think he's doing something fascinating with the sound design here as well. I mean, I know a, a lot of p- people have pointed out that it's um, it, it's very comical at times and just like how over the top it is. But I think it's also a very interesting example of. Um, longtime listeners of the show know that I, I really love like playing with diegetic sound and that's basically the sound that, um, or with play with diegetic versus non-diegetic sound, which is diegetic being the sound that the characters on screen can, can hear non-diegetic being something like score that the characters couldn't hear. I think there's a lot of examples here of, uh, subjective diegetic sound, which is to say like, I think whenever we hear that amplified sound of the knife across the toast or the the water being poured or a clinking of a of a teapot or whatever it is I think it's the uh subjective sound that Reynolds Woodcock himself hears. Yeah, it's more than subjective. It's that it's the the POV sound. How yeah. often do you get a point of view sound that you can recognize and go, "Oh my god, this is what he's hearing." This is how loud it is to him. And, and so back to that like perspective shift thing where it's like Alma's kind of narrating some of, but then we get in, we get deep into Reynolds head sometimes. And, and he's just doing this thing where he's effortlessly moving around in perspective, but he gives you enough cues to kind of know where you're centered. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, it, it, just using something as simple as sound, but as effective, I mean, because it's like the first time I saw it, it was so jarring at first when you just hear that toast scraping. 
Um, but then it, that sort of alerts you to like, okay, this is a motif that we're going to continue to go back to. And, and it's, you know, something that continues to trigger, um, the really darkest, worst parts of the Reynolds Woodcock character. Well, and I think what's interesting about the sign, and now we spent what, 10 minutes talking about sound, but, um, those breakfast scenes are incredible because when you're looking at them from kind of that subjective point of view, Mm-hmm. You know, you're also spending a lot of the time on Leslie Manville's face is Cyril. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing her who I think, you know, you know, obviously she did get a Academy Award nomination, but she's not been given enough credit. I think her work is incredible in this film. And we are getting front on perspective shots of her reacting to uh, Reynolds and what he is thinking and what he's saying. And she is thinking what a man child this guy is, you know, like she is like, she loves him obviously, but at the same time she sees all of his flaws, you know, she has to break up with his girlfriends for him. Uh, And at one point, you know, spoiler, but almost breaks up with his wife for him. And it is incredible that PTA is just, I think in a way that he's never done before, he has begun to look at faces and really focus in on people's faces in a way that, you know, Leslie Manville's face. And I just couldn't get over it this time, how much he focuses on the cracks and crevices of people's faces and then the perfection of the fashion and mm-hmm. juxtaposing those two things together. And, it, you know, it's, I think he's just doing something really amazing when he's talking about um, these people. He's really focusing in on something that no other, no other studio would ever let you do. No other director is going to, sorry, no other studio is going to let a director take a 10 second shot of somebody's face like that. I I mean, I don't know how new it is though. I think um the master has a lot of that going on throughout it as well. Yeah, the master the master does have a little bit of it, but it doesn't focus on the imperfections in a way. You get you get some like especially in Joaquin Phoenix, you get some awkward tight like of his lip quivering or his eye kind of twitching. You, you get, you get some of that. Like, I think it's, I, but I, I do get your point. Like it's even more effective here because you've got it juxtaposed with these beautiful creations and, and those sorts of, um, those sorts of things. Like, I think it's maybe something that he started earlier and he's perfecting here or it's, well, he's using it as a tool here. It, it's a weapon in his arsenal that he employs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I do like, I do want to talk a little bit about the relationship between Cyril and Reynolds, because I think it is an interesting, um, they, they have a very interesting dynamic and one that continues to shift as I revisit the movie. You, you mean between Reynolds and his so-and-so? I love that little touch to, oh, <laughs> oh, hello, my little so-and-so. Like, he, it's just, 
it tells you so much about the relationship. And the, the actual relationship, I'm amazed how much Cyril is just an enabler for Reynolds to be this, this man child. Well, she's sort of his muscle. Like if you think about, if you think about like, if you were to reframe this as a genre movie or something where, cause I, I kind of love that this movie, the like big intense action scene of the movie is, Oh my gosh, we have to repair this dress because it's got shoe <laughs> polish on it and it has to ship out tomorrow. Like that's the, you know, because it's a, because it's a movie about dressmaking, like that's where the big intense moment comes in. Also, as far as Cyril's acting in that, that scene, I just love the, when she, like when will this be done let me rephrase this this will be done at 9 a.m tomorrow when this goes out to belgium like she is so firm and direct yeah that's what and that's what i'm getting at is like she's kind of she's kind of the like if this was a gangster movie she would be like the mr french to reynolds woodcocks uh not whitey bulger um uh, frank costello um it, like that that's sort of where she she exists to intercept any sort of problems and that's and that's why she is the one who um who is dealing with his you know little love life yeah love affairs gone wrong and what but also because she's his sister and she knows how finicky he is she knows how he can get into these manic spirals of you know just getting very irritable and so she's the bulldog that tries to prevent that from happening because she's also the business person who has to make the, you know, has to make the house of Woodcock make money. And she knows if he gets off on a tangent where he loses his entire day, they're not going to be able to do that. Excuse me, Mr. Woodcock. Yes. I would like to say that I hope one day I could wear one of your dresses. Oh, thank you. That's your wish. I hope it comes true for you. She really means it. She told me she wants to be buried in the dress that you make. Thank, Thank you. you. Ladies, for your kind words. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. You'd dig her up and sell the dress again, wouldn't you, Nigel? Well, otherwise it would seem to be going to a waste, but yeah, only one book can try. I think, you know, more than a sister-brother relationship... She has become his surrogate mother in a lot of ways and really taking care of him in ways. And so that's, I think, when Alma steps in is that the relationship then becomes much more of a sister-brother relationship because Alma is now taking the place of basically mother and uh, spouse or mother and yeah. girlfriend. And, you know, not that she, you know, there's never a maternal instinct really to Alma, but, all you know, what triggers Reynolds is that he wants to be taken care of. He wants to feel the center of attention. He's a child still. And he wants to, you know, like everyone when they were a little kid, when their mom came in when they were sick and, you know, mom took care of him, he wants that feeling. And he wants to, when he, well, I think when he breaks down finally and kind of professes his love to Alma and potentially why it doesn't work with other people is that he doesn't want to show vulnerability with other people and he is able to show vulnerability with Alma in a way that he may not have been able to with other people. Oh, he, he only, he only likes, he's truly a baby. He only likes two things, his mom and food. That's really the only <laughs> things we see him enjoying in the movie. Like when, when he sees Alma looking good, he's like, I'm hungry. 
like oh. or the, you know, like that comes up a couple times in this in really weird ways and his mom comes up way too often he is he is he is the most base instincts of a of a baby how does he eat the breakfast he eats with the welsh <laughs> rabbit the bacon the sausage the scones the toast the jam not strawberry how did you eat all those things and still look in that trim of shape he went to dinner after that yeah he ate that night yeah <laughs> But he didn't have a plate in front of him, which I thought was very interesting was that when they had dinner, she did she had it in front of her, but he didn't have anything in front of him. She was the dinner. But you know, so I think it's you know, I think food is certainly very interesting in this film and plays a motif kind of from from the get go, but um obviously it, it also is an ending motif as well. So I think it's very interesting the way that PTA is using food, which is obviously a base instinct for everyone, which kind of brings you a little bit into Reynolds Woodcock's life because the, at the outset, he's impossible. You can't really penetrate him and understand much about him. So having something like food, which is a base instinct that everyone has to have, it gives him some entryway for us to understand him a little bit. What I don't understand is why, as far as food goes, is why Alma would prepare his asparagus and butter when she knows he likes it in oil and salt. That was that was probably my favorite scene in the movie. Because she's a spy. Because she and he's been dropped behind enemy lines. Sent there sent there to, to assassinate him. Actually though, <laughs> I, I, I think you know, I, I think you get at a good point though about or 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 you bring up something that gets to a good point about Alma though. I think the reason that Cyril is willing to sort of allow Alma to come into this world and even willing to go to bat and fight for her to stay there is because from the very first moment that she meets uh, Alma, Alma is fighting back against Reynolds. 14 and a half, 17, 20. Just stand normally. Yes. I stand normally. Like before. What do you mean? Straight. Straight. Like that. Yeah, you didn't say that. And so I think Cyril sees in Alma from the beginning that like, oh, this is a woman who can go toe-to-toe with the most stubborn man I know. And they go toe-to-toe a few times in this. That's her pushing him, testing him, giving him what he really needs because he is a baby who sometimes needs to have, you know, the the spoon given to him of the, of the thing that he doesn't realize that he um, he needs, but ultimately does. And that's, you know, then you get into the, the whole metaphor of the poisoning and what, what that does for their relationship, bringing them together and all that. She is the, it takes someone as strong as Alma to break down someone as stubborn as, as Reynolds. And I think that's where some of the criticism that initially came up and has been coming back to the movie since, um, you know, since it's come out on VOD and is now on home video of it being just this misogynist sort of uh, wet dream or whatever. I, th- I think it's totally off base because it totally negates Alma as the character that she really is. I didn't read about this. Can you can you expand on that a little bit? I mean, there was the the last thing that I read was this was last week, maybe two weeks ago. There was a, a New Yorker article. I think it was called "Why the Why Phantom Thread Is Like Propaganda for Toxic Masculinity." Um, I'll link to it in the show notes. I, and the basic, I, it was to be perfectly honest, the I I think just the argument in that in that article was 
um, a little rough in it's, you know, this, uh, this guy saying, Oh, well I grew up in, I forget what country Peterson. You, I think he said, was it Czechoslovakia? And look, I'll just say that piece to me. He didn't talk about the movie for what, at least a third of it. Yeah. Well, and, and I get that his, his point is like saying like, I grew up in a place where I saw propaganda and I was affected by propaganda. And so that's like his whole thesis is like, I've seen it. And so I know it, but then he doesn't really back it up with like, he totally, he totally throws Alma out and says like, Oh, well she's, she's not even there. She, and, and, and basically presents it as like Reynolds Woodcock is supposed to be a hero. And I don't like, I no, I don't understand no, that read not. at all. He's pretty much the villain at best. Alma and Reynolds are like a Joker Batman situation where they, they fight. And that's what brings them together. Like in Lego Batman movie. <laughs> well, and it's never even like he, it's not like he starts out and you're like, Oh, I kind of like this guy. And then you see the evil in him. You see the evil in him from the beginning. He, he is never, he never exhibits a positive, um, uh, anything, a, a positive trait, except for he's good at his job. And he's sometimes funny to us because we're not involved. If he's talking to you, he's not funny. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love when he's talking to the, he's like, didn't I tell you to fuck off <laughs> to the doctor? And it's not, it's not, didn't I tell you to fuck off? Oh, I'm sorry about that. I was sick. It was, it's like this. Didn't I tell you to not be around me is how it comes off. Yeah. It, well, it can be read two ways. It can be read as like, oh yeah, sorry about that. It can also be read as, Shut your mouth. And I think he kind of means both. You know, I think that's the moment where Reynolds begins to unwind a little bit. Uh, That's when, you know, um, Henrietta, who's the first person we see him fit, um, she is kind of prodding him a little bit and kind of saying, you know, well, we could have worked out. We could have worked out. You're with this infant, basically, when he's talking about Alma. And it is a moment where he is now being challenged from the outside on this perfect little life that he has created, even if it's on his terms. And then Alma begins to basically take stake of the relationship and say, these are the parts that I'm going to have. You you can have your little voyage fantasy of doing whatever it is you like doing, but you know what? I'm taking this piece and this piece and this piece. And she's slowly taking over the relationship in a way that I don't think – I think that the mis the misreading of the film really is coming down to people thinking, well, people are going to like and want to be Reynolds Woodcock, which I don't think is necessarily the case. There's certain qualities of him, you know. I, you know, I'd love his house. I'd love his country home. I don't want to be him. He's not an aspirational figure to me. You know, certain things about the life are fun, sure, but at the end of the day, I think you know the more compelling argument to me. And I know that um, – I don't know who else said it, but I you know Chrissy Puchko had uh, talked about it a little bit on Slash Filmcast. Uh, she had a take which was very similar to that person's. I think had a little more merit to it where she was saying, you know, the only two women in the film that really have much screen time are those two. And, you know – Alma and Cyril. Alma and Cyril, yeah. And we yeah. don't really – does the film even pass the Bechtel test? You know, I don't know if it does or not. I didn't do that close of an examination of it. Yeah, but. two women talk about getting a dress done on time, sort of. Or you have Alma speaking French to the Belgian princess or whatever she is. Yeah, you know, that um, in that moment, and that's a moment to me that I think is very enlightening because Alma really does assert herself in a way that 
probably at that time frame was v- certainly a no go when dealing with the yeah, princess. Yeah, she she told a royal to to back off her man, basically. Basically, yeah, but at the same time, and not even that, you know, I think it is heavily implied that Alma is Jewish, and this is right after the Holocaust, and um, even uh, Henrietta, which is the woman who Reynolds fits the first time. You know, she says, you know, is it racist to think this? And so even, you know, that's certainly there in the conversation. You know, it's not a huge topic of it, but it is Alma kind of testing and asserting herself in waters that at that time frame, probably she shouldn't be doing. I missed that entirely, by the way. Did not know she was Jewish. There's the all the puzzle pieces are there. And it's like, it, I mean, it's sort of the same thing as like, do they ever explicitly say in a scene, hey, Reynolds, my brother, hey, Cyril, my sister? I mean, I know he says her name when he's talking about the dress, the the wedding dress, but I don't like there. there's a few things that are just like little. He gives you all the information, but you have to piece it together a little bit. He says it a little bit at the country house that his sister's coming. I, th- I think that's how we know. For oh, sure. perhaps. OK. okay. Yeah, I think he's I think he mentioned her in that regard. But with Alma, there's there's this puzzle piece, you know, she, she is a puzzle and he gives us all the information we need, but we have to piece it together. I mean, I think one of the most explicit places is, uh, when who's, who's the lady that they end up tearing the dress off of. Jules Riley, news of the world. Who'll be the attendant at the wedding? My son, Cal, my Cal, my son is so wonderful. He's so in favor of this marriage. John Evans, Daily Mail. And what of your holdings, Miss Rose? Do they become Dominican property? I don't know. I don't think so. If I may say, we are being married under Dominican law, but in my country, her money belongs to her and my money belongs to me. Anyway, why would I need her money? I have enough of my own. (laughs) (laughs) What's Barbara brought into your life? I brought sincerity into his life. Sincerity. One kiss for the camera. Go on, give us a kiss for the camera, Miss Rose. Answer to the question is sincerity. Let's give them a kiss. Rubio, tell us about sending visas to the Jews during the war. Visas, Jews. Thank you very much. One of the one of the people at the press conference says, "So, what is this about you selling visas to Jews?" And then it immediately cuts to Alma, and Alma has a very like, it's half rage, half uncomfortable look on her face. And and then what's what happens within the next five minutes? She's ripping a dress off of a woman. Well, I think in when you know, kind of taking that stance, you know, with um, ripping the dress off, is that what's really important to Reynolds is kind of keeping his life under control. Right? Is that he likes everything under explicit control, whether it's his yeah. breakfast, whether it's you know, the only times we ever see him kind of truly make a decision that is. Kind of different. Like, let's say the first time he pulls Alma to his room, he's been drinking, you know, which is something that inhibits his control. So mm-hmm. when he's talking about control, he loves to, because when you're talking about fashion, everything is controlled, right? Or at least the way he does it. It's the dress is the dress, and there's nothing you can take or fabricate or change. So when you're talking about that, when you're dealing with the woman who was passed out on the bed, she is now taking over that dress and making it and asserting something that is not what Reynolds truly believes in. And now the control has shifted and Alma said, you know what? I'm going to take that back. 
because she's realized the control is the thing that Reynolds wants more than anything. I think that's interesting, especially with um, when he says she uh, has no breasts, but it's okay because he can give them to her if he chooses to. The whole thing about fashion in this, like you said, is about him controlling, but he even can control giving, you know, the feminine aspects to Alma. That's all under his his control. Right, right. But to to get back to the sort of the point that I was I was getting at. So we've got that. And I and I think it is the um, at least my read was sort of it. It takes that that moment at the press conference to then push her to the I'm not sure she would have pulled that dress off of her had had she not had that experience just before. Like it, it feels like a a place that, that pushes her to, to an edge. And then you have, you have her talking to the princess in a way that feels a little cryptic. You have the comment from, uh, Madam Baltimore, um, about her kind or her people or whatever. Um, and, and it kind of paints this picture of, well, someone like Alma, someone who is willing to be extremely fierce and strong in the face of what seems like, you know, a place where you really shouldn't cross a boundary. She is the type of person who would survive these unspoken atrocities that she may have have dealt with earlier in her life. I mean, she's she's a character who we don't get a history or a backstory to, but not because she doesn't have it, but because it's perhaps unspeakable. Yeah, I think, and I think that's one criticism that people are starting to lob at the film is that Almond don't have a backstory. But I think PTA, look, PTA is incredibly too smart to just say, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to give this person a backstory. Like, you know, he's not that kind of director. He's not that kind of writer. He's going to give you exactly what he wants to give you. And the thing is, the film wouldn't be as interesting if we knew everything about Alma. The interesting parts of Alma are that the mystery is there. She is mysterious from the beginning. And, you know, why does she go to dinner with him? Why does she uh, basically go home with him? You know, which, you know, honestly, I'd, you know, maybe there's a 21st century reading of it. But, you know, if you're thinking, hey, I'm going to go home with a man, it's potentially going to lead to sex, which at that time was, you know, obviously a much bigger deal. But it ends up that he's going to fit her for dress. Um, and it makes it much in, more interesting that she goes with him. And she is – and honestly, I think she is the one that pushes the relationship um, to even have at the beginning because he says, oh, do you, do you have dinner with me? And then she mm-hmm. drops the note. She's the one who says yeah, – he, he might be asking her out, but she was already going to take the initiative. Yeah, yeah, she was going to say, hey, my hungry boy, let's go. <laughs> Her hungry boy. Because that's where they meet, right? Which is my hungry boy. And the last lines of the film are him saying, it's either I'm hungry or I'm rather hungry or something basically along those lines. Their beginning and the end of the relationship of the film are dealing with hunger. And in between, in between, he, when she looks good, he says, you're making me hungry. Like it comes up a few times and it's creepy. Well, I mean, he is a pretty creepy He's a pretty creepy dude. I mean, and and to the to your point, Peterson, about him not being 
an aspirational sort of character. He's not even, it's not even like a, a Charles Foster Kane sort of character where it's like, Oh, well it's so glamorous. And there's, you know, it, it, he, he's this guy who over, like, he's not a, he's not a pleasant figure in, but ironically in a different way, in a completely different way than someone like Daniel Plainview, he's maybe, you know, he's a, in in the same way that Daniel Plainview is a man of a time and a place, uh, Reynolds Woodcock is a completely different man of a completely different time and a completely different place. Um, and I don't know. I just I guess the the whole read about the uh, misogyny or the toxic toxic masculinity on this film uh, feels so weird to me because I feel like in every single scene, either Cyril or Alma. Um, mops the floor with Reynolds. Ultimately, when they stand up to him, he is he he does not have the upper hand in reality. He may he may try to bite back a little bit, but like they're going to win the fight. Well, and what Cyril say in that breakfast conversation, she says, don't pick up me. You certainly won't come out alive. I'll go right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll go right through you and it'll be you who ends up the floor. Understood. Like she puts him directly in his place. And I think, I think the reading of that, you know, if it was a different year, I don't think we'd be having that conversation. I think that that conversation is very tied to the current um, Me Too movement. And not, you know, I'm not disagreeing with that movement at all. That's not what I'm saying. I'm more saying it is picking for a straw in a year where, you know, there are a lot of straws out there. Yeah, sure. It's an issue that's not in the text. <laughs> yeah, it, it's being applied from the outside. It's looking at everything through that lens that allows someone to even try to want to make that argument. It's saying this is the zeitgeist, and so how can the zeitgeist be applied to this? In a, I mean, because he is a problematic character, but he's not problematic in the way that you know, a sixteen candles date rape is problematic. No, yeah, and I think well, I think at the end of the day, he is he is toxic. I don't know if he is. He's not hyper-masculine by any means, though. Yeah. I think, you know, he is certainly a toxic figure, though. He is the most disagreeable person I've ever <laughs> seen on screen. I mean, that scene where um, she puts too much butter on the asparagus and makes him dinner, like, from the moment he walks in, she says, where's Cyril? He's starting to question the dinner before it yeah. even happens. And he's already made up his mind, well, you know what? Cyril's not here. This isn't my normal routine. Eh, I'm not I'm not going along with this. I'm going to destroy this night. So he becomes, at the end of the day, he's the one who becomes his own worst enemy. Well, he's also, I mean, if you really look at his character in, in the broad scope, he is this guy who is probably beyond his greatest days as as the leader of this house of woodcock and really alma is probably the future of the house i mean he's already losing clients because they're going to look for something more chic which he very much disagrees with did you guys think the like obviously the costume design was great but were were they the outfits supposed to be not like 10 out of 10 were they supposed to look a little like they were falling behind the times? Because I picked up on that, and I didn't know if it was just me being ignorant or. If I was- think it's. I think it's different. I think when you look at it, I mean, maybe they're not a hundred percent of the time, 
But I think, you know, it is something that I'd imagine Grace Kelly wearing on the red carpet. Um, yeah. And it's something very much of the time. And I think potentially the difference is that he is crafting from an aesthetic point of view that other people are not. He's he's crafting a Reynolds Woodcock, a House of Woodcock style versus whatever is currently in and fashionable. Mm-hmm. And so it could be that he, you know, the House of Woodcock becomes something that feels a little bit older and, you know, right. less like whereas he had his time as uh, the the great. Uh, dressmaker like the, the people have, have moved i mean you could also think this is this is the 50s we're on the cusp of the 60s sexual revolution things are about to change fashion wise a lot um so no i i mean i think i think the thing is that he has his own niche and he's not willing to move out of it oh yeah he's about to have a bad decade the oh, next yeah. decade's gonna be rough but obviously alma also brings her own perspective to it as you see when she argues about the pattern of the uh the fabric yeah i think that's another clue that pta gives you that you know what she's gonna assert her opinion and sometimes it could be right you know um i think when talking about the 50s because i I think this probably takes place in the middle of the 50s if i was gonna Mm -hmm. guess by 53 to 55 maybe I'm, i'm not positive but you know, he takes that uh, fabric, which is from the 1600s, the lace that he talks about, and he says, you know, I've been waiting for the perfect time to use it. And instead of using it on somebody external, he's using it internally for Alma. He's trying to make and fashion and construct his life, which I think what he does most in the, in the film is that he constructs his world, not the external world. You know, I think he is a great dressmaker, but at the end of the day, I think he could be an even more well-regarded dressmaker and get more kind of fame if he wanted to play that game. But he wants to construct his own narratives in his own world because at the end of the day, what's PTA most interested in? Individualism and individuality. And he's interested in butting these two people up against each other. And then if you incorporate Cyril into that, that's three people that are basically put into a stew together. And what's PTA do? He blends them all together to see, well, who's going to basically, who's going to come out alive, you know? And Riddles Woodcock does not come out alive into this. I think he has been kind of marginalized by the end of it because what's he want most? He wants to be baby. He wants to be taken care of. And he wants to feel like his worldview is basically correct um, but he will let somebody else stomp all over him to make that happen. Well, and I, I think maybe also where, where the hot takes come in on this and that sort of is like, people are looking for a different film than what PTA is interested in giving us. He's not, he's not a guy who's particularly looking to make a broad political statement or, or, you know, he's not, he's not a, a director with his own hot takes. He's more interested in, in story and character in like you're saying, the individuality and exploring how those things all intertwine together. And so, you know, where he came up with the idea for this, right? Well, it was in collaboration with, uh, with, uh, Daniel day Lewis, right? Well, kind of, Oh, Oh, so, with my Rudolph giving, yeah. kind of taking care of him as he was sick. Yeah. 
I think he talks about that in if, if I, I actually have I have a couple of podcast recommendations supplementally to this. The did you hear the Directors Guild discussion between him and Ryan Johnson? No, I haven't yet. I'd love to. Oh God, I'll I'll link to it in the show notes. It's really good. So Ryan Johnson interviews him for it was like a half hour to forty five minutes, something like that. Um, and it's really good, great insight. There's also a great, uh, I don't know if you guys ever listened to the treatment with Elvis Mitchell. Yeah, I love it. Talking about the costumes. Did you hear the, uh, Mark Bridges who actually went on to win, uh, the Academy award for costume design for this? Um, he, he talks with, with Elvis Mitchell about the costumes in this and, and sort of his style and approach, which is, um, kind of great. I mean, he talks about how, um, he's never been really interested in conventional fashion, which sort of fits perfectly into crafting a house of Woodcock style because it's not quite exactly, it's not like they're mimicking exactly what the fashion was of the fifties, but what someone else who didn't exist in the fifties could have been making at the time. Yeah. Um, which is brilliant. At the end of the day, when the film ends, the, Kind of the last shot before moving to that I'm hungry portion is Alma talking about um, what she envisions of the future. And mm-hmm. she's pushing the stroller and then it leaves Cyril with the stroller. You know, we need to take that as what actually happens because part of me thinks that Reynolds Woodcock could be impotent. You know, that the whole movie, you don't see him ever really act in a sexual manner. He only really aggressively kisses Alma in one moment. He does take her to the bedroom one time. Yeah, and she seems pretty satisfied with it. I mean, that, I guess that really depends on whether she, whether he's just all in on just Alma or if it's a full, like, I mean, which they don't, he doesn't really get into, so it can be debated. But I don't know. I sort of took it as he's, he's a fully... Uh, fully functional man. Well, and, and the reason I say no is because he exhibits no sexual drive or no sexual characteristics at all. The only time we ever really see him kiss her is the one time after she takes the dress. And then the second time is uh, towards the end when he says, kiss me, my dear, before um, I'm sick. I don't know. I feel like my, my read was not that um, he is impotent, but that he doesn't need like his desire is not directly a sexual one. It's more, I mean, there's obviously this edible thing going on and then he's driven by his work. And so it's, it's just, he doesn't have the time to run the house of Woodcock and get caught up in passion and all of that. And re- remember he's, he's a man child. He's, he sort of is a child. And if, if we're going with him being like an adult baby, then he, he really, you know, might not show those urges. Also, when you say that they don't have, uh, that, that they could have an active sex life or whatever, clearly they're playing some weird game where she poisons them with mushrooms every now and then. <laughs> That's got some weird sexual component to it that I don't even want unwrapped. He he is a kinky dude. Well, but, I, but that's not a sexual component. That is a, it's basically, that's a, a submissive to a dominant relationship, right? That is her asserting her dominance not in a sexual manner, but in a manner that responds and she can directly tap into Reynolds's uh, needs. She knows he wants to be cared for 
and she becomes his dominant and he becomes the submissive, which is what he wants most. Yeah, but I, I don't think that means that he's he's impotent. And to, to answer your question, I, I do think it, it is a fantasy. I don't think it's necessarily like it doesn't feel like it is a flash forward to what will happen. It feels more like what Alma hopes for. But at the same time, knowing what we know about Alma she will probably try to get what she wants. And and then that also supports the argument that he's probably not impotent, impotent because she would know by this point that he is and that that's not a plausible future for her. I mean, regardless, that kid's going to be fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so when I watch There Will Be Blood, while it's not my my favorite film or anything like that, I leave feeling like he had some very strong things to say about capitalism, uh, about uh, being a man, about being independent, all these different things. And it, and it had these broader implications uh, within the film that you get through Daniel Plainview. Through Reynolds Woodcock or through this film, are, are there any bigger picture things or is this just a really small personal picture. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't tell where to land on it. I feel like there were big things being said that I was missing. Can you guys help me with that, maybe? There certainly are some bigger themes going on, but PTA is not going to rub your face at them. That's not his style. So I think when you're talking about what he's trying to put forward, you know, the film is very much about individualism and what it means to be an individual, but at the end of the day, end of the day, I think the movie is very much about the concessions you make in a relationship and what it means to exist in that kind of relationship and what it means for long-term relationships. You know, if you're with somebody for a year, you know what? You don't necessarily have to have these concessions, but certainly I think when looking at Cyril and Reynolds, they've made certain concessions that, are in line with their personalities, right? You know, Cyril has made the concession that she's not really going to look for uh, any kind of romantic love, that she has to take care of her, basically take care of her brother, right? And Reynolds has now made the concession that he won't marry. And then finally, you know, the confirmed bachelor begins to look outside for marriage. And the only time that happens is that when he meets a strong-willed, woman who's going to assert herself and dominate him in a way that he's never been treated, which is kind of his turn on, right? Because he is still in love with his mother. Correct. Um, he very much is. <laughs> Looking at pictures of her and then seeing her in that one moment where she's in the corner of the room, mm -hmm. I mean, it, I, I feel like it has to be that PTA cast her and frames her to be very much like Alma of an Eastern European descent not mm -hmm. of a British descent, correct? It felt it felt something like that. I was trying to figure out. So he he seemed like he was very British. They they weren't from somewhere else, correct? No, I think he's Welsh. Well, Welsh. I mean, I think that's okay. just I think that's the accent what I'm drawing to. I think it's a Welsh accent. Yeah, I I mean, clearly she's supplanting his mother because we we see the mother disappear when she's in the room. She takes the role pretty much at that point for the rest of the film. Yeah, I don't I don't know if he even talks about his mom again after that. Well, and I love the way that. It's edited because she walks in and he's looking at her. And obviously, who knows? Is she there in the kind of actual tangible space with Reynolds? No. But is she there like from a kind of a pictorial sense? Yes. So she walks across, kind of puts the clothes down, then walks right past her 
into the closet. When that's when it cuts to Alma in the closet, and then it brings back. Uh, then it cuts back as she walks across her again, and then she and she's, she's gone. gone. She's gone yeah. that time. When she does the maternal instinct of taking care of uh, Reynolds, that's when she's gone for the the final time. That's when she's gone. Um, he's he's no longer haunted by the ghost of his mother because he's found finally found someone his to new replace mom. her. No, and and I think one thing I think is really interesting is that the one time we see uh, a dress with something sewn into it. That is not something that is of the House of Woodcock that is for them. The only time we ever see him sew something into a dress for somebody else is for the Belgian Duchess or the Belgian um, yeah, princess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's Alma discovering and it says never cursed. And it's in a wedding dress, which is mm-hmm. the kind of dress he made for his mother. And I think it's really interesting that – that is what we see because it's Alma discovering something that was never meant to be discovered. That was a secret we were never meant to know that no one was ever meant to know except for Reynolds. And she now found it out. And I don't think she sewed it back in. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. Um, Jake, to, to answer your, your question, I mean, I guess I'm sort of in the same boat as, as Peterson with like what deeper things I I got out of this. Like, I think it's, it's really a character analysis of what it takes to have a functional relationship, even, and, and, and presenting it in a way that is not a Hollywood love story, but more, it feels like a more practical representation of, uh, the day to day of a relationship where both parties are, equally aware that they're in a relationship and and working at making it work and and giving something of themselves up to make it work and how a messed up person can find their perfect partner or two messed up people maybe she's willing to poison them multiple times with mushrooms <laughs> seemingly without consent i think we already touched on it a little bit but i think you know she is of eastern european descent i think it is implied that she is jewish and i think it is implied that um, she escaped the uh, whatever was happening in her country during the war. And so she is certainly damaged. And it's two people kind of finding solace in each other that, you know what? It's not their perfect lives. You know, it's not Ladybird where I want you to be the best version of yourself, right? It's yeah. the only version that they know how to live right now. And unfortunately, you know, that's, that's the way that a lot of people live. Um, you know, in one thing, you know, I do want to touch on, I think it is really difficult to enjoy this movie and not embrace the comedy. Yeah. It's really difficult to look at this movie and see the subject matter and think, well, this is going to be a laugh fest. But there are so many moments in this movie that I am laughing out loud. And and it's easy in a theater. Because I remember the first time when I saw it in a theater, um, I said I saw it in the suburbs in Atlanta. I was, you know, the youngest person by thirty years, maybe, and nobody was laughing except my wife and I. And then we were back at it laughing, probably even harder at home when we watched it this time. Yeah, and it's it really is. It's so 
funny. And I think that's – I think if you don't embrace the comedy, the movie's just going to feel like an absolute slog and bore to you. It's almost like Gallo's humor because you're just watching him slice people up and they're slicing back. And and that's – it's just the horror that people would say these things. Well, there's, there's touches of absurdity. There's touches of – I mean I, I love – I love the little look that he gives when she goes out for New Year's Eve. Um, I love the the exchange about are you an assassin sent here to kill me um, or are you a spy like there there. Yeah, it's, it's this like he finds a way to kind of without without breaking any tension that is built there or without taking you out of the moment kind of inserting these little release valves of comedy. Well, I love that moment when she butters her toast. And he says insane moment where he says, "Is it's like you rode a horse through here," <laughs> yeah. like, and it's the craziest thing to have said to somebody. And then, but there's like probably ten moments like that where I'm like, it shouldn't be funny, but it's it's the way. And I think it really is goes back to the performance of Day Lewis, how he's embracing the comedy of it. Like he is understanding what a ridiculous figure Reynolds Woodcock is. Yeah. And he embraces something like, you know, you, it's like you rode a horse through here or I don't have time for a confrontation, which is the first thing. That's what basically <laughs> leads him to breaking up with his first significant other at the very beginning of the film. And then, um, you know, probably the the biggest laugh out loud moment, yeah, is that uh, – are you sitting here to kill me? Like, are you, are you a spy? Yeah. yeah. I also like when he gets sick and he says, I swear if you, whatever, I'll die right here. Like he is the most dramatic little person. It's because oh. he's a child. Oh yeah. Yes. He makes, he makes everything dramatic. And then the very end when he, she says, he says, I love you. And she says, I love you. And he says, well, then you better leave. Like who, who would have thought a PTA serious film about haute couture fashion has, you know, poop humor. If you would have told me that a year ago, sitting here like, oh yeah, I'm going to be talking about poop humor with the next PTA film, I would have told you you're crazy. But yeah, he he embraces the comedy and the absurdity of kind of humanity, really. I think it's really easy to look over the comedy in this film if you're not looking for it. And I wonder if if you were to watch it just by yourself – and not have seen it with a crowd if you would have kind of picked up on that humor or if it would just be the lobster for me <laughs> i think i think i think so i think there's there's enough of it there it's not it's it's not like direct joke punchline setup stuff but i i think it's still there's enough kind of physicality in in some of day lewis's uh, mannerisms and and stuff that there's there's enough to pick up on. And I would also like to say, Peterson, if you're not expecting poop humor from Paul Thomas Anderson, you're in for a real big treat when his new secret uh, direct Netflix Adam Sandler movie comes out. <laughs> yeah, this is the double reverse. He's gonna he had to d- deny it so that it could be true. Well, no, he he didn't he he didn't do the stand up. He is doing the next whatever the sequel to Ridiculous Seven, whatever whatever the new Adam Sandler feature is. Well, but obviously that is that is a hang up or a predilection for PTA because there's the incredible moment where. 
uh, it's from the master when Lancaster Dodd basically renounces Freddie Quell. And then what's he do? He lets off steam by peeing right next to him. Yeah. And that's how he basically lets go. So, I mean, yeah. it's certainly, you know, PTA is certainly interested in bodily humor in that sense um, and kind of what, you know, basically release what it, what it does for us. Spoilers are done. Spoilers are done. Turns out Rosebud was only a sled. Kylo Ren's dad is totally dead. Noah Cross was Mulray's baby daddy. And also her regular dad. When the Midnight Warriors sit down to watch Phantom Thread for the first or second time, Chris, do you have a beer recommendation for them? Or third or eighth or umpteenth. I don't I don't care. I've got I think this is the perfect recommendation and it's uh, maybe a little on the nose, but that's OK, because this is a this is a really solid beer. It's got a cheeky tie in, of course, because it is breakfast stout from Founders Brewing Company in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, this is a stout coming in at a whopping 8.3% ABV, a pretty hefty 60 IBU on it. So this is a, I mean, as, as the name would imply, this is sort of a, a delicious oatmeal stout beer. It has a lot of coffee and chocolate notes to it. Um, and, and a little bit of like a little bit of spiciness to it as well. It's a, like if there was a hot cup of cocoa for adults in beer form, it might be this beer. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's brewed with, uh, both Sumatra and Kona coffee beans to give it that, that rich coffee flavor. Um, and I mean, if, if you're going to pop open a beer, uh, first thing in the morning while you sit down for your 18 course breakfast, this is the beer that you should do it with. And if you're going to sit down and watch Phantom Thread at any time of the day, this is the beer you should do it with. Breakfast Stout from Founders Brewing Company. I'm pretty sure Reynolds had one course. It was all that breakfast. I mean, it. he could have easily broken it out and it could have taken all day to eat that entire breakfast. <laughs> oh, yeah, easily. All right. Phantom Thread is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures, including Redbox, Amazon, Google Play, and more. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we would still love to hear from you. Ring that bright red telephone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. And uh, if if you're going to leave hate mail on this one, make sure you come up with the best like Reynolds Woodcock angry uh, tirade for this voicemail. Stick around. We'll be back after the break with some really chic recommendations you won't want to miss. Crooked teeth and a broken smile
All right, guys, it is time for really rad recommendations again. Peterson, you are our special guest today. So how about you go first? What do you have to recommend? So I'm going to recommend from last year, um, which is War for the Planet of the Apes. Um, and it's a franchise that to me, I you know, I, I liked uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And then I actually love, I think Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is a absolute masterpiece. I actually, I really love that film. I think War for the Planet of the Apes really concludes that franchise in a really interesting way. Um, I think Matt Reeves is one of the best kind of spectacle directors we have because he looks at it from a really holistic view, not just a kind of, oh, let's get this shot. You know, I think he's taking motion capture in a way that nobody has yet. Um, and I, obviously he's doing that with Andy Serkis. And I think he is dealing with themes of the original Planet of the Apes and really bringing them into a modern uh, texture. This is a franchise that I think concludes really beautifully with this uh, film. And I think there are some, you know, some significant flaws in the last 20 minutes, but everything leading up to that is incredible. I think it is absolutely wonderful. Andy Serkis is, again, doing the best work promotion capture we've seen yet Woody Harrelson's doing some really interesting things and I think there's a movie that it made some money last summer but nobody talked about it and I think this is something I think everyone should seek out um, you know to me it's one of the best movies of last year it's, you know it, right now it is still in my top 10 I think it's number 8 or 9 from last year but there's still a couple things I haven't seen that uh, could bump it out but hoping it stays there because it's a movie that really to me is one of the best things in the last couple of years from a science fiction standpoint. Uh, it's not quite to the heights of Dawn from the Planet of the Apes, which I think really is a not a perfect film, but as good as action filmmaking gets. Um, yeah. But I do love War for the Planet of the Apes. So yeah, that's War for the Planet of the Apes from Matt Reeves. Uh, you can find it on um, you know Redbox or any of your VOD rentals like Amazon. Excellent. That's one that for some reason, I, I never made it out to the theaters for any of the, uh, these new apes movies, but I, I really liked, uh, Dawn and rise, even if I get them confused because it always feels like Dawn should come before rise. I think is that the, it's rise and then Dawn. Correct? The naming, the naming convention for this franchise is about as no dumb as the fast and the furious franchise. Yeah. <laughs> It's close. If you could fit another of the in there, I would be really good. All right, Jake. Well, what do you have to recommend? Well, you know, I always like to usually tie into one aspect of a movie where it be a director, or actor, or scene that reminds me of something. For this one, the the, the scene where uh, Reynolds Woodcock goes to uh, uh, find Alma on New Year's Eve to, I, I presume, confess his love, or at least I did at the time. I was like, where have I seen this before? This feels a lot like something. It felt a lot like a movie that I watched for the first time last year. Rob Reiner's When Harry Met Sally, which is probably not what you thought I was going to recommend. Have you seen this one, Chris? I haven't, actually. It's definitely worth seeing. Is it a war crime? I don't know if I go as far as a war crime, but it's definitely worth seeing. All right. Um, Billy Crystal is great in it, and it really is like the the rom-com to watch, I suppose. But uh, Carrie Fisher has a, has a great role in this, and I did not expect her to show up. So I was like, ah, Princess Leia. And, and this was... Uh, this was before she passed away. So, yeah, now it might be a, a something you, you definitely should seek out. But there is a very, very similar scene um, on, on, on New Year's Eve. 
that I even think part part of it is framed the same way. Hmm. And so immediately I thought about when Harry met Sally. And uh, so that's my that's my recommendation. Uh, but part of that is just that I love Rob Reiner. And when we're, when we're done with our John Carpenter focus, I'm going to push really hard for a Rob Reiner podcast <laughs> at some point. I, I have a title. Oh, that's OK. Do you? What is it? It's uh, Beg, Borrow or Rob Reiner. Okay. Is that bad? But my alternate was Meathead Movies, but that sounds like it's about something completely different. We can we can workshop this. <laughs> I've, I've not seen When Harry Met Sally, so both of you have not seen this. That's crazy to me. Have you, have you seen the other Rob Reiner stuff, like Spinal Tap and Princess Bride and all that? Yeah, I've I've seen I've seen most of the quote unquote Reiner classics. I've seen the just... bucket list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. You can see When Harry Met Sally, the Rob Reiner film you should seek out on Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, and more. Occasionally it shows up on Netflix, so just keep your eyes open. Uh, and when we'll and you can follow uh, WSAM Pod on Twitter, and we'll let you know if it shows up somewhere. Uh, so, Chris, what do you have to recommend? Uh, my recommendation comes from my recent Filmstruck exploration. And this is actually a movie that I watched in preparation for seeing Phantom Thread the first time, thinking that perhaps there could be some crossover and in a in a way there is but not in the way that i expected uh this is Cinso, the 1954 film by lucino visconti and so this this film takes place in the mid 19th century in sort of set against uh the italian war of independence and it follows this italian countess who is taking part sort of in this rebellion against the Austrian occupation of uh, of Italy, and she ends up falling in love with an Austrian lieutenant. And it's it sort of the the thing that I I really enjoy about it is it falls you know it falls into some of the trappings of what you would expect of like a 1950s melodrama, but uh, presents the the Countess character in a way that is. Uh, something that you, I don't know. She's, she's given a lot more agency than you typically get, uh, out of a story like this. Generally, I feel like this story would be told from the Austrian lieutenant's point of view, and she would just be sort of this, uh, fly by night floozy who he, you know, has a, uh, has a fling with, and he's kind of a bad guy, but we're, we're meant to love him and find him endearing. And it's the relationship is far more complicated than that. She is a far stronger character than you would typically get. And, uh, Visconti's, uh, work as a director is beautiful, both, you know, just behind the camera, um, and, and with, with composition, with, uh, the use of color in this film is, is gorgeous. Uh, so I, I highly recommend it. This is, I think this is the first Visconti film I saw, and I think it's a pretty good entry point. Um, it's currently available on Filmstruck, or you can pick it up on a Criterion Blu-ray as well. And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Join us in another fortnight for a brand new episode of The Carpenter Shop, our ongoing exploration of the work of director John Carpenter. Next time, we're throwing on some magical shades and getting woke as we discuss Carpenter's final film of the 1980s, They Live, starring Rowdy Roddy Piper and Keith David. Peterson, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, thank you for your always enlightening PTA insight. Uh, do you have anything that you want to plug social media or the like? Yeah. Um, so you can follow me at Peterson W Hill. That's my, uh, Twitter handle. And hopefully one of these days to come on and Jake really goes head over heels for a PTA film. 
I'm I'm holding out hope. He's you know he's still got plenty in the uh, in the hopper to check out. He hasn't seen everything, so we just got to find the right one. It's my feeling. One day, maybe. I'm I'm, I'm not opposed to him. It just it's got to hit me right. All right. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes and more. Or say hello on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, rate and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or, if you're a narcissist who loves to hear the sound of your own voice, you can leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. The Spoiler Alerts theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash The Taylor Machine. And shout out to Smokey in the Mirror for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at smokeyinthemirror.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Peterson, are you a special agent sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire life? Well, of course I am. in the 1970s in a way that nobody's ever looked at. And I think there's that incredible moment where um, Bigfoot eats the ashes. Yeah. And it's basically he is what? He's the 60s becoming the 70s, right? And it's, <laughs> I, I really hope a Sasquatch eats someone's ashes. And if not, I don't really want to watch this film. And it, and it, look, I would say spoiler alert, but... I can't even imagine how that relates God. to anything. I can't wait to see it.